Okay, let's begin with prayer, shall we? Lord, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for the effectiveness of your word to um, challenge and encourage us to open our hearts and lay them bare before you. Thank you, Lord, as well for our time together around your holy table. You meet us again and again at that table, Lord, to tell us that you love us and that you've given everything for us and that you want us in fellowship with you and that you've taken that on your own shoulders to make that effective and to actualize it in our lives. And we're grateful every time we taste that bread and drink that wine, we we lift our hands and praise to you in thanksgiving that you have drawn us into your own fellowship. And we're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, good morning to everybody. Um, we're in Hebrews chapter 7 today. Then I think we'll take a break for a while. Um, I don't think we're on next week. Now, last week we talked about um, the warning passage in, in Hebrews chapter 6 where the apostle who's writing to this generation of believers is encouraging them um, in the reality of the fact that they've been called into the life of the gospel, that they have a priest who's interceding for them. That's where we're going to go back today. He's encouraging them toward maturity, right? So this encouragement that the apostle is bringing them to maturity is a particular kind of maturity. What's the maturity that he's calling them to? Steadfast hope. Steadfast perseverance. Um, a hopeful perseverance in the truth of the gospel. In other words, a belief and a willingness to recognize that the gospel is true, that it's true for me now, and it's true for me all the way into the end of my days. Right? That's, that's the call that's being made uh, to, the, to the Hebrews here. He also raises the real challenge and the real warning about apostasy. That is those who have tasted of the gospel and then turned their backs definitively on the good news of God's grace in Jesus, and he warns them about that. He warns them about that as a real live possibility. But then he goes on into the next verse and he says, but that's not you. I know this isn't you. I've seen the work of the Lord in your lives. I've seen the work of the Spirit in your lives. I'm not fearful about that. In your midst, I want you to know about the warning, but I want to call you to maturity. I want to call you to that steadfast hope. And then, and we didn't talk about this very much last week, but then he moves to the end of chapter 6 and he uses Abraham as a prototype of what that faithful, steadfast perseverance looks like. And we'll come back to Abraham a little bit this morning as well. But Abraham becomes a paradigmatic figure for um, Hebrews, for the Apostle Paul as well. There's a lot of reasons for this. Number one, Abraham is the progenitor of uh, the Jewish people. That's a big deal. Um, Abraham is the one that God initially established a covenant with that would then bring the Jewish people into a national identity and also identify the Jewish people as the means by which God was going to bless the world. That's the so-called Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. There's another significant feature about Abraham, and that is he's someone who comes before the law, right? So if you think about the temporal framework of God's economy, Abraham is pre-Mosaic. That's really important for Paul because Paul's wanting to demonstrate that even in the Old Testament itself, you had figures, significant figures, the patriarch of patriarchs, Abraham himself, who was deemed righteous, and Abraham had no idea necessarily of the, of the specificities of the Mosaic administration. But he was deemed righteous because of his faith in God's faithfulness to him. 
So Abraham becomes a very important figure. Um, he also models something. We'll get to this in Hebrews chapter 11 whenever we arrive there. Um, but we'll get this, to this in Hebrews chapter 11 as well. Abraham models what this life of faith, what this steadfast perseverance actually looks like. I mean, think about Abraham as a figure. Fascinating, right? Um, he's called to go out of his place. Abraham was a man of some means. We can put that together quite easily from the narrative of the Bible itself. Abraham was a patriarch. He had family. He had, um, he had a, a servants underneath him. Lots of possessions. So that when Abraham leaves Haran and begins to make his pilgrimage, he's got a whole entourage that's going with him. Wealthy people do that, right? So here's a man of wealth probably a man of prominence in his community who receives a call from God in the words of Hebrews 11 to go to a place that he had no idea where he was going. That's actually quite astounding. People write on this. I think about a book that came out maybe eight years ago by Old Testament scholar Walter Moberly on the whole nature of discerning true prophecy from false prophecy. Have you ever thought about this? How did Abraham know I mean, we, got, we had the Bible. Uh, by the way, I'm raising a question right now I cannot answer. I didn't tell you, right? Um, but how, do you ever think, I mean, how did Abraham know, how did he know, um, I mean, if we use modern terms, I don't want to be overly anachronistic here, but how do we know that Abraham wasn't some schizophrenic, right? He's like hearing voices in his brain. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, oh, just put yourself in this situation. I'll put myself there. I go to, my, to Naomi and I said, you know, um, God told me last night that we're supposed to go to Panama, and, uh, and we're going right now. We're going to Panama. Uh, I don't know why I picked Panama. Uh, <laughs> Peru, wherever, somewhere bizarre. We're, we're, and we're leaving, and we're going. Well, well how, how do you know this? Well, because God told me last night in, in a dream. Um, this, this is what's happening with Abraham. Abraham has an encounter with the living God in a way that we really don't understand the ramifications of it, but he follows and his willingness to follow and to go and to take everything with him, and here's the key terms, not knowing where he went, not knowing where he was going, because of his willingness to do that, he models for us what it means to be a pilgrim in this journey of faith. What it means for someone to actually be in an ongoing, moving pattern that recognizes that this world is not our home in the old spiritual, we're just a passing through, right? And here he goes, and he goes to his place, and then we have a series of events in Abraham's life that challenge this faithfulness. The one that's the most significant that we all read about to our horror, right, is Genesis 22. One of the things you, you begin to sense as you read biblical narrative is that biblical narratives are funny in the ways in which they speed up certain scenes and slow down other scenes. In other words, some of the details that you feel like you need to know to put together a good plot and a good story, the Bible will just blip right over this. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, king Josiah, um, one of the great king, a messianic king in the southern kingdom, came to the throne at the age of eight, he was righteous and godly. He discovered the law again. He implemented Torah and the purity of religious expression again in, in, in Judah in the southern kingdom. I mean, Josiah is a significant messianic king. And we're told in Kings that 
Josiah ends up in the northwest part of Israel fighting Pharaoh Necho II, and he's killed there. Next verse. And then so-and-so came to the throne. And, uh, yeah. well, well, hold on here. I mean, what's going on geopolitically that would have led Josiah to have a showdown with Pharaoh Necho II in that part? It wasn't even his area. It wasn't Judah. It was up in Israel. Well, why was he doing that? Don't know. Having a faintest clue. Because the biblical narrative doesn't deem that all that important. But the narrative will slow down in other places that doesn't seem all that important. So I can get just a few verses and I've got enough. Let's move on. Genesis 22 is one of those places where you've got a clip, clip, clip going on within the Abrahamic narrative. It's moving, it's moving, it's moving. And then all of a sudden it's as if uh, the, the, the audio track is hit on a lower speed and begins to slow down to a slow voice. Genesis 22, he's told to go and sacrifice his son Isaac, and it's as if the narrative is wanting to put the knife in our own side as readers as well. Go and take your, your son, next phrase, your only son, Isaac, to Mount Moriah, and there I want you to sacrifice him to me. Again, you raise the question, well, how in the world could he verify that that voice was authentic? These are kind of modern questions that plague us. Can you imagine, he didn't tell Sarah, obviously. Now that came up in the Bible doc movie thing that was out last year, and Sarah's screaming at the bottom of the mountain. She would have been, I'm sure she knew, but she didn't know. He takes his son, he obeys, he goes. This is the kind of narrative that fosters deep philosophical and ethical reflections on what it means to obey the will of God. I mean, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, for example, wrote that famous piece, um, uh, fear and trembling, as, as a whole ex- engagement with this one narrative in Genesis 22, what does it mean for us to follow the ethical life when God calls us to crazy things? I think uh, Kierkegaard's famous phrase for this, which is not great dinner conversation, but he calls it the teleological suspension of the ethical, right? In other words, there's a, well, forget it. But, um, so, I mean, it's it, it, Genesis 22, but, but here he goes. And he raises the knife and God intervenes on his behalf and he demonstrates faithfulness again to the word of God. And this is central to Hebrews chapter 6. He demonstrates faithfulness to the word of God and the promises of God, despite his circumstances. That's what Hebrews is getting at for pastorally with the original readers and us as well. Despite circumstances, despite all the confusion that could come to a scene like Genesis 22 and the offering up of Isaac, Abraham went forward obeying the Word of God because he trusted in the promises of God. And that's riddled throughout the narrative, isn't it, in Genesis 22? Uh, Isaac asked that famous question, right? Uh, Sticks, fire, we're missing something here, Dad, right? That's my Eugene Peterson message translation on that. Uh, we're missing something here, Dad. Uh, well, uh, y- uh, Yahweh uh, Yirah, right? Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will, and this is a great phrase. We always say provide, and that's fine. But it's, it's kind of literally a seeing idea. The Lord will see to it. He'll see to it. Um, and he asks it again. The Lord will see to it. He trusted in the promises of God. This is how Hebrews glosses that later on in Hebrews 11 even believing that Isaac would be resurrected from the dead. Because he knew that the promises of God, that God had sworn to him by oath, by covenant, 
God had sworn to him that he was going to make his seed, his progeny, the means by which the whole world would be blessed. And that blessing came from this son of laughter, Isaac. Laughter is his name. It's a joke. It's a divine joke that Sarah's having a child. It's all a big humorous divine joke to even be at this moment. Who could have conceived of a story like this? And yet here he is on a mountain about to sacrifice that son of laughter, that son of joy, because he believed that God's promises would be seen through to the end despite the current moment of his circumstance. So Abraham becomes a great model for us of what this faithful existence looks like despite the complexity of our circumstances. The big question that the author of the Hebrews is wanting all of us, myself included, to wrestle with is this. Will we trust the saving promises of God now and in the future despite our current circumstances? Will we trust in the saving promises of God? And that, that was his hiatus there in Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 6. But if you remember... He wants to get back to Melchizedek. Uh, I did not know that the reading this morning was going to be from Hebrews. That's God is on the throne, right? Um, so here we are in chapter 7. And let me read this to you. Uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, if you have phones or Bibles or whatever. Um, I, I, just, I just refer to this section as an Old Testament sermon. We're seeing the author to the Hebrews here preach an Old Testament text. Let me say something about that. That's a little bit of a, um, a, a carrot for myself. Um, uh, the earliest sermon, besides the biblical text themselves, the earliest sermon that we have in the church is from a figure named Melito of Sardis. And you can find this, you can probably just Google it and find it. It's actually quite moving. And the title of the sermon, we're talking second century here, the title of the sermon is On the Pascha, On the Paschal Lamb. And it's a sermon from beginning to end on the book of Exodus. It's an Old Testament sermon. Uh, we do well to remind ourselves, right? I know this is a bit self-serving, so forgive me. But we do well to remind ourselves that for someone like the author to the Hebrews, or in the second century with Melito of Sardis, or when you get into Irenaeus toward the end of the second century, and then Tertullian in the beginning of the fourth century, and when you get into the uh, third century, when you get into these figures, they recognize that they were going to do their theological work and their homiletical sermonic work on the basis of the Old Testament. The Old Testament continues to shape and frame the ways in which they're coming to terms with Jesus. As one of my favorite scholars on this subject, Hans von Kampenhausen, said, and I think it's provocative but true, the question in the early church and the apostolic era as well was not, what do we do with the Old Testament now that Jesus is here? Or the Hebrew Bible now that Jesus is here? It was actually quite the reverse. How do we understand the significance of Jesus Christ revealed as God in the flesh in light of the assumed character of our Old Testament scriptures. That was the logic that was being deployed um, in the early church. And you see it here in Hebrews chapter 7 as well. He begins with an Old Testament sermon based on Melchizedek, Genesis chapter 14, verses 7, uh, 17 to 20. And admittedly, well, let me read this. All right, let me read this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, El Elyon, you may know that, uh, that Hebrew term, 
met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. It's a weird story. I mean, I don't know, if you've read through Genesis, I mean, we know the big scenes in Abraham's life, right? Ishmael and Isaac, the meeting of God at the Oaks of Mamre in Genesis 18, the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, but there's that middle section, chapters 13 and 14. It's just weird. He's, he's going off and killing people, right? And they, they've taken some of his people hostage. He goes and has a showdown against some kings. And on his way back, because we don't think of Abraham as a warrior figure, but Genesis does. Here comes Abraham back, sword still bloody from battle, and he has an encounter with Melchizedek, a priest that shows up really out of nowhere. I don't know how to think of Melchizedek in, uh, in ways that don't include some imaginative construal of fog and smoke, right? It's like, ooh, you know, it's a little bit like Enoch in the Old Testament. I, I don't, don't repeat this. I often say this about um, Robert Smith, who's preaching here at Wednesday in chapel, I mean, in the, the, the Lent series. If you've not heard Robert Smith, I encourage you to come, and I encourage you to bring your seatbelt. If you're not used to African-American style preaching, you know, brace yourself. It's like putting your mouth to a fire hydrant, just to give you a warning. Um, but I, I often, you know, the, the phrase about Enoch is, and Enoch was not, right? That mean, where's Enoch? Well, he's just gone. Like, God took him. Um, he didn't die. He's just, and Enoch was not. I often say that about Robert Smith. I think one day we're going to find out Robert Smith was not. Right? Just, just gone. He's with the Lord now, right? Um, so you have Enoch. You have these figures that show up that are bizarre. Um, you have Melchizedek who shows up out of nowhere. He's a king and he's a priest, a priest to El Elyon. Um, and, and this is the, the sermon that's going on here in, he, in Hebrews chapter 7, 1 through 10. It's a comparing and contrasting between the order of Melchizedek and his priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood of the Levitical tribe. So this is what he says. Um, and to Abraham he apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So he's doing a little etymology here. Melch- oh, I should write this. Oh, is this going to make somebody mad? <clears throat> So, um, Melchizedek, right? Is that okay for me to do this? I'll tell them that you said it was fine. Um, So, Melchizedek, here you have, right, Zedek, um, right, and then you have, uh, right, that's that's just for fun. Um, But, Zedek is righteousness. Malak or Melki is king. So he's doing a little etymological play here, right? King of righteousness. So here's this king of righteousness who's also the king of Salem. That is, he's the king of peace. He's without father. He's without mother. He's without genealogy. And listen to this phrase. This is why I'm telling you, this is smoke and fog here. He has neither beginning of days nor end of life. Melchizedek is a priest king. He's a priest king who's a priest because of his divine appointment to be a priest because that's what he's been forever. right? Not like the Aaronic priesthood. Not like the Levitical priesthood where you have a son 
who's born to a father, who then becomes a father and then has a son, who then becomes a father and then has a son. That's how the priesthood is advanced along the Aaronic line. Not so with Melchizedek, right? So there's a comparing and a contrasting that's going on between the Aaronic priesthood and Melchizedek. What's the focus here? The focus is that Melchizedek is timeless in the nature of his office. That's the number one focus. And the second focus of this sermon is he's a priest that has no successor. Now think about that in contrast to the Levitical priesthood. That's limited to a particular time in God's economy. Right? The Aaronic priesthood was particular to the Old Testament economy itself. It no longer continues, at least in Christian worship and theology. And secondly, it's based on familial succession. Melchizedek is a priest who has no parentage, he has no descendants after him, and he has no commencement or termination of life. I mean, you can see why, through the history of biblical interpretation in the Christian church, if you go back to figures in the early church like Origen or Irenaeus, Athanasius, if you move on in time to Anselm or Aquinas, or you move into the Reformation period Luther and Calvin, they will all be univocal in their understanding of who Melchizedek is. There's no doubt about it. Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. The church is pretty singular in its reading on this. Why? Because who else can be described in these terms? A king of righteousness, the king of Salem, of Shalom, the king of peace, who has no beginning, who has no end, his priesthood is forever. So we're going to see that Jesus shares in common certain aspects of the Aaronic priesthood, that is, the sacrificial side of the priesthood. But when it comes to his eternal identity as a priest, his true genealogy is related to Melchizedek himself, and one can see that in fact, and I, I, this is my own sense of this, that one actually begins to see a sharing of the same essence and reality between Melchizedek and Jesus of Nazareth himself. Why? Well, because of the way in which they're narrated here in the story, without genealogy, without descent, without beginning, without end. And what's emphasized here? This is the emphasis of the sermon. Number one, Jesus' priesthood has no successors after it. None. There's no child that comes after Jesus that's then going to continue on His work. It shows the finished character of the priesthood of Jesus at the cross and His continued priesthood now on our behalf on the basis of that once-for-all work that He did at the cross. He was a priest then, He's a priest now, and he will be a high priest forever. That's why he's in the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest whose priesthood lasts and endures forever. And that's, that's the significant claim that the author is making here. Secondly, it also shows that Melchizedek functions prophetically in the Old Testament now. Prophetically, Melchizedek func functions to show what the true priesthood would look like in time in the person and work of Jesus. And that's a priesthood that stands forever, perpetually, in, in, in God's own life. Now, we'll come, we'll come back to some of this. Let me check the time. Okay, so chapter 7, verses 11 through 28. Now, the focus shifts from comparing Melchizedek and Aaron 
to then focusing on Jesus, who is like Melchizedek. Okay, he's like Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 11 says, I'll do a few points here and we'll be done. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? So here's the big question that the author is raising. If the Levitical priesthood had the ability to bring about the desired perfection, the desired end, for which, priest, for which priesthood actually functions and exists, if the Levitical priesthood could have done that, then why in the world would we need Jesus, who's in the order of Melchizedek, to come onto the scene? Now that raises a question, right? What is this perfection that the author to the Hebrews is talking about? What is the perfection? I think the perfection is listed for us in verses 18 and 19. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. He goes on to say, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Through which we draw near to God. What is the perfection that's required for the order of Melchizedek that the Levitical priesthood could never really attain? It's the perfection of drawing near to God in a perpetual state of being. When you think about the Aaronic priesthood and the Day of Atonement, it was a yearly activity that had to be repeated again and again every year. But what's the priesthood of Jesus in the order of Melchizedek? What is the perfection that that priesthood brings for us? What it does and what the Aaronic priesthood could never do, it brings us behind the curtain, behind the veil, into the very throne room of God himself in a perpetual mode of being. We are perpetually fellowshipping in the very life of God himself because our priest, who's a priest forever, he's not has no successor. He's a priest now, tomorrow, and forever. He's brought us into his very life and he intercedes for us there and allows us to draw near to God in a perpetual state of being. It's an enormous claim, right? In other words, what was unique to one symbolic figure in old Israel. was unique to one figure where he was allowed once a year, only because of his lineage and his parentage, to go back behind the veil, to make atonement, to purify the relationship, to help us be able to draw near to God again. And then he had to leave that veil and go back out and wait till the next year to do it again. And what Jesus does for us why he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek is because he's a priest forever that lives to intercede. Listen to this here, verse uh, 25. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's the big verse right there. He's able to save us for all time, again and again, in a perpetual state of being. Why? Because he is a priest who's a priest forever. And he's a priest, Hebrews chapter 1, who is actually involved in the very life of God himself and lives evermore to intercede for you and for me. It's a significant pastoral move here that the author to the Hebrews is making. It's a move that he's moving. I mean, think about it. He's, we might think about this as sort of theology in the sky, but this is theology with the rubber on the road right here for the author to the Hebrews. 
Because he's wanting to encourage these believers who are about to enter into what may be a very difficult time. He's wanting to encourage them to recognize why they can have the steadfast hope that he's called them to in the previous chapter. Why can you have a steadfast hope? A hope that endures today and tomorrow. Because again, despite the circumstances that you're in, you have a high priest who perpetually resides in the very life of God himself. And he's brought you into himself and he intercedes for you again and again before the Father. And Calvin was so beautifully reflective on the continuing priesthood of Jesus Christ. I, I, I think Calvin is one of the better theologians in the history of the church to give detailed attention to what it means for Jesus to continue to be a priest for us. And significantly, Calvin said, we need to remember that Jesus does not sit idly in heaven. He is actively and dynamically involved in the life of God and in our fellowship with him in that very life. And what does it look like? It looks like here in Hebrews, in John 17, and in other places as well, Romans 8, that what he's doing for us right now is he's interceding on our behalf. He's praying for us. I mean, this is why the author of the Hebrews can say, the reason why you can have confidence and hope is not a turning into yourself, looking at your own moral superiority, looking at your own piety, looking at yourself in the mirror. I mean, Luther was so good on this. Whenever you begin to feel a little superior... Take a look in the mirror and see the big donkey ears hanging off yourself. That's what Luther's, I mean, nobody could turn a phrase like Luther, right? Whenever you're starting to feel a little haughty, a little good about yourself, a little, a little morally perfected, just take a look at the donkey that's really in the mirror, right? I mean, here, there's no call to looking in the mirror at our moral achievement. The call to confidence and hope is that we have a priest who shed his own blood and didn't do it just at one moment in time and then left it there, but has elevated that one moment in time into the very life of God Himself, and He forever perpetuates that offering to the Father on your behalf. He's interceding for you, and He's interceding for you on the basis of what He's already done for you. So the pastoral implications of that are rather, rather serious. Jesus is able to save them now and in the end because he's a priest forever who intercedes on their behalf. He doesn't sit idly in heaven. He prays and he intercedes. That's good news. That's, by the way, that's gospel news, isn't it? To think about the fact that our Savior, this is why I love Ascension Day, by the way, our Savior who has ascended, which in many ways, from our perspective, seems like bad news, right? Um, Philip Yancey, in his own provocative way, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, uh, Yancey said, of all the aspects of Jesus' life and ministry that perplexes me the most, it's the fact that he thought he needed to leave again, right? I mean, why did you have to leave? Well, I mean, he left and he goes back to the Father and he gives us the Holy Spirit because now in his life with the Father, he is interceding on our, on our behalf. He knows, he knows your name. He's praying your name. He's interceding on your behalf. He knows Advent Church. He knows the mess that our denomination's in. He knows all of it, right? And he's interceding on our behalf. He's lifting it up to the Father on our behalf. So that's, that's the, I think, the good news here of Hebrews chapter 7 and why pastorally the author is so intent on driving this point home. And that is, 
in the moment now and in the moment later when various crises arise in your life, and Job was right, man is born to trouble like the sparks fly upward. It's coming, right? Um, and when those moments happen, what gives us confidence and hope is that we have a priest who's in the very life of God himself. Okay. Yes, ma'am. No, I mean Genesis fourteen. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's one of I was, I was, it's just one of those weird texts. He, he's not a major figure. Melchizedek. Like if you did a, a Bible word search on Melchizedek in the Old Testament, you'd find him. And I, I failed to mention this morning. You'd find him in Genesis fourteen and in Psalm one ten. And Psalm 110 is quite significant because it identifies the coming king, the messianic figure, as a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But what that means, the significance of that, it, it, it's, a, it's rather opaque. I mean, it, and that's what you see here is the author, that's why I like this section so much. The author to the Hebrews is doing a theological reading on the Old Testament, this Melchizedek figure, in light of the revelation of God in Jesus. So he's bringing them together in a robust, in a robust in, uh, form of communication where the one influences the other to help us understand both figures better. That's the nature of the technical term is typology. We're moving backwards and forwards, and both figures are corresponding to each other in such a way that I have a better purchase on both because of the two. It's a backwards and forwards kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, sir. God, no beginning, no end. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say it's either Christ or the, or the you know. That, that, that's, but, but yeah. Then Jesus, when John the Baptist people come and ask him, are you the one? He also doesn't. He just gives the attributes. Why, why not go ahead and spit it out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a great question. Um <clears throat> Because because Jesus doesn't play fair. It's just it's a it's 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 a um, it's one of the, I mean for example Luke chapter eight is one of the, it's probably the parable of parables where Jesus gives the parable of the sower and the seeds, and he gives this parable we all know it few fell on the thorns few fell on the rocks then some fell in good soil and and then Jesus gives this parable and he shouts out and if anyone has ears to hear let, let him understand what I'm saying. And no one understood what he was saying. I mean, even the disciples pull him aside in the next few sec- uh, verses, and they're like, uh, we didn't get that. What, what do you mean? Speak more clearly, please. And then Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you. I think what we see Jesus doing in what's technically referred to as the messianic secret, why does Jesus tend to keep his identity a secret? Why does he say, for example, no one ever followed through with very well on this, but he just raised a little girl from the dead. And what does he tell the parents? Don't tell anybody about this. Let's just keep that between us. Yeah, right, right. But let's just keep that between us. I mean, there's a sense in which Jesus tends to hold back his messianic identity, probably from an Isaianic standpoint. He's coming to make ears deaf and eyes blind, but also in time to make ears open and eyes open as well. So that the messianic secret is sort of delayed in a way because where he's going is the cross, the passion. 
And that's where the fullness of his messianic and his divine identity will come to the fore. So the kind of tension that you feel feel where Jesus seems to be delaying the full revelation of his being, and every once in a while he'll pull back the veil, like the the Mount of Transfiguration, and all of a sudden we're like, this man's not normal, right? Or or Peter on the boat when when he stops the wind. I fear that, you know, I fear uh, uh, I'm in the presence of someone very special here. I'm a sinful man. The veil gets pulled back, but all that pulling back and then the veil closing again, it opens and it closes, is a tension that I think the Gospels present for us because they're moving us tyrannically to, to the death and the resurrection of Jesus as at the core of his identity as our messianic figure. Um, we're, uh, uh, Dr. Hole and I were talking about this just before class. It's one of the reasons why I think Jesus says, for example, we heard it in the reading today, I've shown them your glory, and I'm going to show them your glory again. Or he says in John 17, I've revealed your name, but I'm about to reveal your name. Well, what does that mean? I think what it means is he's given lightning flashes of his identity. Enough within the narrative to be able to say, this person is a messianic figure, and he's God in the flesh. He's claiming God's own identity for himself. But the cross that's coming, that's a surprise. That catches everyone off guard. But, but at the same time, that's at the core of his identity, of, his, of the fullness of the revelation of God in human flesh, is when we get to the cross. But that, there are multiple monographs written on the question that you just raised right there. And, it's, and the technical term is the messianic secret. Why does Jesus keep his identity a secret? It's, fa- it's a fascinating subject. Yeah. Hey, Mark. Yeah. When you're talking about... Uh... Jesus is an advocate. Gunner and I, Gunner's reading Encounters with Jesus by Tim Keller. And he had a really interesting thing. It's like two, two lines. Let me read it to you. It's like, Jesus is advocating on behalf of us when we present ourselves to God. And this is what this is the way Keller describes it. He says, Father, yes, Tim did do it again, but I have died the death he should have died. And I have lived the life he should have lived in his place. I am his advocate. He is lost in me. When you look at him, you have to see me. You have to see all that I have done. You have to see all that I am. And therefore, Father, it would be unjust for you to take two payments for this sin. I have already paid for it. Therefore, Father, I do not ask for mercy. I demand justice. And I just like was thinking about when you like high priest, Hmm. advocate, all those things. That's the difference between us and every other religion out there is that it is finished. Yeah. It is done, and it's done for him. It's good. Thanks be to God. Amen. We'll end on that, Reed. That's beautiful. Thank you. All right. We'll see you all. Blessings to you.